Hey, it's Tony from Adafruit, and this is part three of the Raspberry Pi Cat Laser 2.0 project. So this is a project to rebuild the cat laser toy that I did about three years ago. So it's a laser that you can control over a web page. Like you click the mouse where you want to aim the laser. So you can play with your mouse, uh, play with your cat remotely, just using your mouse uh, on your computer. And for this project, uh, and by the way, go in the description below when this is up on YouTube, and you'll see links to the previous two videos. So if you're new to this, start with video one. Uh, I kind of give an overview. I show the old video for the project. But the idea with this is that I want to build this in the cloud or take the uh, cat laser to the cloud in the sense that I want to allow multiple users to control the cat laser. And there'll have to be some like system, you know, every person maybe gets a few minutes to play. Uh, but, you know, originally with this project, it was just built to run on a Raspberry Pi. And it's really hard to have something that runs on the Raspberry Pi, but is accessible to a lot of users because the Pi itself can't serve, you know, load, it can't like serve a web page to hundreds and thousands of users like, you know, a cloud server could that has a lot more hardware for it. Uh, and so that's the idea. I want to explore this space of how do you take some hardware thing running on the Raspberry Pi and then add like a cloud layer above it that lets, you know, more users uh, control this thing. And so if you go back to the first video, I kind of outlined my thoughts for this. The second video, the previous video, um, I basically I got all the cat laser code working again from the uh, first project. So like all the hardware effectively, there's a little servo arm that we're using uh, and then like the laser itself. And we've added some control to like turn the laser on and off and stuff like that. So last video was just rebuilding the project and testing out locally. So in this video, I wanted to start that process of kind of pulling apart, you know, what is the cloud part of this? What's the thing that's going to run in a server out, you know, in, on the internet, eventually in like maybe Amazon Web Services or DigitalOcean or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, what is the component that still runs on the Raspberry Pi? And so I'll jump back to a little diagram that I made before. I'm trying to think of the best way to show this. My workbench camera is kind of in a weird spot, but uh, let's just jump to the workbench camera. So that's the workbench. And if I throw this, okay, yeah, you can see that. That works pretty well. So this was a little diagram that I made uh, in the first video. And this was showing, you know, what was my thought as far as how to separate the two parts of this. So there's stuff that runs on the Raspberry Pi right here, and that controls the actual servo arm. Uh, and then it also has the camera up here with the MJPEG streamer. And then in the cloud here, or you know, on a server on the internet somewhere, I'd have something that's actually doing a reverse proxy for that MJPEG stream, which just means that you know, lots of users right here can connect to a stream that then connects to the camera on my Raspberry Pi. But this code right here, or whatever's running, it should be smart enough to only make one connection to my Raspberry Pi. Because if each of these users has a separate connection to my Raspberry Pi, that's a bottleneck. Like, I, you know, I'm only going to be able to support as many users as the Pi supports. And for an MJPEG video stream, uh, I've read like some people have gotten two or three users, maybe if you're lucky out of that, which that's just not going to cut it. I want, you know, tens and hundreds of people to be able to watch this thing. Uh, so that's one aspect. And that's actually what we're going to explore in this video. I'll show you a really cool way to, uh, to make that happen, to do that kind of reverse proxying with some smart, not necessarily caching, but smart connection logistics. And it was actually trickier than I thought. And we're not even going to use Nginx. I thought we'd use Nginx. Turns out Nginx won't work. So uh, I found another good option there. 
Uh, but then also on this cloud side, there will be some web server running or web application. And that's actually what people will access. And so that will give you, you know, some like queue system where you get in line to play with the cat laser, or maybe if you're not in line, it'll just show you that video stream. Uh, so you can just kind of watch. But then once you're at the top of that queue, it'll give you some special uh, controls that let you, you know, control the, the cat laser and that type of stuff. So in this video, I just want to start this framework of, you know, how do we pull these two things apart and, you know, start creating this cloud server. And I'm not actually going to put it into like a, a cloud service just yet, but we'll, we'll kind of see how we can pull these apart and, and start to get this to work. And also the hardware I have set up here, I just have everything set up like I did in the last video. So I've got the pan tilt servo arm right here. And then uh, the Raspberry Pi, obviously the camera, it's just being held by a little helping hand here because it's looking down at the floor below. Uh, and then uh, up here, there's a little transistor that's controlling a laser diode that's connected to the uh, servo arm right here. So go back to the first two videos if you aren't familiar with this hardware yet. So that's uh, nothing's really changed from those. So we'll go back to the main view right here. And okay, so the main view. So to get started, like I said, in this video, we're just going to start this process of pulling these two things apart because right now, all of the code runs on the Raspberry Pi. So I need to separate it out so that I've got some code that's going to run in some server somewhere and then talk to my Raspberry Pi, both to get that video stream that the Pi has using that MJPEG streamer. Go back to the first video. You can see how I set that up. Uh, and then also some code to tell the Raspberry Pi, like, okay, now aim the laser here or aim the laser there. Uh, and so to do that, what I wanted to start with was just creating a new little server that's only going to run on my Mac that I'm uh, streaming from here. But that's okay because, you know, eventually I can make this server run like on Amazon service or whatever. But for development, it's easiest uh, enough to just create a little local server. And there's an awesome tool that you may not know about uh, that, that can really help with just spinning up a little server uh, used heavily in like web development and testing and things like that. But there's no reason why you can't use it. Just make your own little server. And it's called Vagrant. Uh, really nice. It's open source. Uh, it's kind of a wrapper around all of these virtual machine tools. So there's a, a tool called VirtualBox, which is also uh, open source and free. And this gives you a virtual machine where, you know, your computer can run another computer uh, inside of it effectively. So it's just taking your computer CPU and whenever that CPU is not busy with whatever your operating system is doing, it gives this little virtual machine some time and says, okay, let the virtual machine run and it can do its own little thing. So it's like creating a new computer, but without setting up the hardware, it's just going to piggyback on the hardware of your own computer. Um, and it sounds really complex, but it's actually really easy. Like the tools these days make it drop dead simple. I'll show you. So Vagrant is a nice wrapper around these tools that simplifies it even more. Like it's literally one command line command that you run and it'll set up an entire virtual machine for you. Uh, I'm going to use Linux or an Ubuntu machine basically for my server, which I think makes sense because trying to make this run cross-platform, especially cross-platform server environments, is really hard. Uh, you know, like if you're trying to support both Windows and Unix servers, like good luck with that. That's because they're just so different as far as environments go. But that's the cool thing, because if I'm using a virtual machine, even though I'm running on a Mac right here, 
I can run a virtual machine that runs Linux and it is a real Linux machine. So, you know, it can download all the same packages. I can follow all the same tutorials and guides and things. Uh, so it's great. It makes it a lot easier. You know, even if you're not super familiar with Linux, it's cool to have this standard environment so that you'll start to, to learn about it. And, you know, you can find resources online uh, that will teach you all about it. So Vagrant is the tool that I'm going to use. And uh, you'll want to download Vagrant. You'll want to install it. Uh, check out their Getting Started. And I'll put links to their homepage down in the description below so you can see uh, these links. But this just gives you a little bit of info about how to use it. You will also have to install a virtual machine provider. Uh, and there's, you can use VMware. They have one like VMware Fusion. It's a commercial product. I think they have a free version. But VirtualBox, which I think is also a commercial project, uh, but maybe not. Maybe it's totally open source. Uh, Oracle owns it, uh, obviously, their logo there. Uh, but basically, it's free. You can just download and install this. It's really nice. So you're going to need to install VirtualBox. Uh, so make sure to install that. And if you have VirtualBox installed already, but you don't have Vagrant, make sure to update it because Vagrant kind of needs like the latest version of VirtualBox. I've noticed that it's very sensitive as far as like, if you don't have a version of VirtualBox that matches up with the version of Vagrant, you're going to get weird errors where Vagrant's like, I can't start this VM and it's not obvious what's wrong. So first step, just make sure your software is up to date basically for this. Uh, but then to get started, so it's as easy as this. Uh, so I'm on my Mac and I've, I'm also, my Raspberry Pi, I'm also connected that with SSH. We'll come back to my Pi. We aren't there just yet. Um, so I'm on my Mac right here. I'm in this little cloud server directory that I created uh, because the way Vagrant works, so you'll create what's called a Vagrant file, which is a configuration for your virtual machine, which just says like, here's how some special things should be set up. Like if there are certain ports that need to be forwarded or things like that, uh, you can put that into your Vagrant file here. And it makes it easy too in that like, if you want to give someone else your virtual machine, or at least how your virtual machine is set up, you can just copy that Vagrant file over to them. It won't copy the entire machine state though. So like if you installed software into that VM and things like that, it's not going to copy that over. But it's nice in that it gives you like a standard way of setting up a machine in some ways. You can put a lot of logic into it. Uh, but okay, so once you're in a directory, uh, this is what you want to do to, to create a Vagrant virtual machine. You run the command vagrant init, and then you need to tell it what type of operating system to use. And it gets a little confusing. Their documentation tells you, you know, you can use some standard images that they have, which turn out that they're kind of old now. That's like Ubuntu 14.04, I think they're using. And the latest version is 16.04, which is like two years later. So, uh, you know, I, I like to use the more uh, recent software, especially with Ubuntu and Debian based things where you're not on a rolling release and you're, you know, you, if you're using Ubuntu 14.04, you're, you're using very old software right now. So, you know, I want to use the latest stuff and it's a little hard to find how to get an Ubuntu image, but I'll put a link below. So these are the names of the images that you can use. And they use the Ubuntu code names, which are like all these kind of cutesy names, like trusty to hear, uh, precise pangolin, that type of stuff. So the current version that I want to use is 16.04 LTS. Uh, and that's Xenial Xeris. I have no idea what a Xeris, let's look it up. What is a Xeris? Uh, because they're based on animals apparently. So a Xeris, wow, it's an African ground squirrel. Hey, I, you learn something new every day. So that's what the current Ubuntu version is uh, called. So I want Ubuntu slash Xenial 64, because I'm going to use a 64-bit version. You know, VirtualBox supports it, pretty much everything 64-bit. doesn't really matter for my needs, but I might as well go for 64-bit. So, okay, so I need to say the name of this box, which is Ubuntu dash, or not dash, slash, 
Xenial 64. Uh, I hope I'm saying Xenial right, but uh, anyways. So all right, so I do this, and all that this command really does is create this Vagrant file. So notice I now have this Vagrant file, and it's just a text file. You can look at it. It's actually Ruby, uh, like in the Ruby programming language, but it's it's pretty easy to figure out how it works. I mean, they basically they put a ton of comments in here, which is nice. Now, you don't need to change anything in here to start with. So this I'm just showing you this is a text file you can edit. Uh, then to actually start this machine, you want to run the vagrant up command. And you have to do this in the same directory as this vagrant file, because that's how all these vagrant commands work. Like after you create that vagrant file, that describes your virtual machine. And then to start it up or to stop it, you run these commands inside of that directory. So I'm going to run vagrant up. Now what this is doing, it's looking at that vagrant file. And it's looking to see, okay, do I have a virtual machine created for this yet? I don't. So now it's gonna like go and import this image, uh, and it'll actually download that Xenial 64 image. Uh, uh, oh, that's kind of weird. What is this thing complaining about? So I've done some weird stuff in that uh, I've deleted my old image um, in here, and so for some reason I think it's confused because I've already got uh, an image that was called that. So. Let me run Vagrant Destroy. You're not going to run into this, hopefully, but let's see if uh, if this removes that image. Yes, I want to delete this VM. Uh, the problem here is that, you know, I, I already had this VM. I deleted the Vagrant file, and then I created a new one that had the same name, and so now it looks like it got confused. So, okay, let's start over. Let's remove my Vagrant file, and let's just make sure there's nothing else in here. Let's remo remove this Vagrant folder it created. Okay, so we'll try this again. Vagrant init, so that Xenial64, and then let's Vagrant up this uh, file. So Vagrant up. And this should hopefully work. But what it's going to do, it's going to download this Ubuntu Cloud image or Ubuntu uh, 16.04 image, uh, which is a little virtual machine image. And the images it downloads, like this is not desktop Ubuntu. You're not going to be connecting to this. Um, boy, this thing is really mad. Okay, uh, so let's let me run VirtualBox uh, because I think I can just go in and delete this thing the old-fashioned way. Um, so unfortunately, uh, you know, you're not going to run into this problem hopefully, but. Uh, so you can see these are the virtual machines it created. Let's just destroy these things. Uh, okay, how do I delete these things in here? Remove, there we go. So, yep, delete everything, destroy it. Remove that too. So, yep, delete that file. Okay, let's try this again and see if this works. Hopefully it doesn't have to download the whole image again. We'll see what happens. Uh, I was hopefully, and if this doesn't work, maybe I'll switch to like the 32-bit version because I for sure don't have that. Um, okay, I think, there we go, now it's working. So you're not gonna have to do this hopefully. It's just me and my weird config here. Anyways, so I ran Vagrant up and what it's doing is it's uh, setting up this virtual machine image. So it's it's running VirtualBox in the background. Uh, you know, it's provisioning this operating system for the first time. It's setting up SSH so that I can log into this machine. Uh, it does a lot for you. It's really nice at how simple this is. Because if I didn't do this, I would have to go into VirtualBox. I'd have to load up like an ISO file that. Uh, installs Ubuntu 16.04. I'd have to run through the Ubuntu 16.04 uh, installer. Like, that's that's painful, that's annoying. So this is cool that one little command, it's going through and just doing it in the background here. Uh, and it takes a little while. When you run this, 
it's going to be a lot longer for you. Um, it's going to take, you know, maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, because basically it needs to download this whole image uh, and then it's going to start running it. So, but luckily, since I already ran this before, it caches all those downloaded images, so it's faster to start this up. Okay, so it's done and there's no errors or anything. You can kind of ignore some of these warnings. So now it's running uh, and I can actually show you that it's running since I have VirtualBox open here. You can see here is the virtual machine it created and it's telling me that it's running right now. So that's kind of cool. And, and that just shows you there's no magic here. Like Vagrant isn't doing any of this virtualization. It's all VirtualBox. It's just Vagrant is uh, controlling VirtualBox effectively. Okay, now to log into my machine, it's as easy as Vagrant SSH. So that's just going to connect to the machine using uh, SSH. And here I am, I'm in my new Ubuntu machine. So even though I'm on a Mac, I have an Ubuntu machine here. So I can, you know, uh, how about sudo apt-get update. So, you know, we're gonna use the apt package manager and update all my packages, uh, or at least update, you know, the metadata for them. So, which is smart to do. You wanna do that the first time you connect uh, to your machine. So, okay, cool. So I've got a little Linux server now running uh, on my machine here. So let's get started then. The first thing I wanted to start with was uh, going back to the camera and MJPEG streamer. So if you remember, I have my Raspberry Pi running. It's running the same stuff from the previous two videos. And in those videos, I had set it up so that if I access my Raspberry Pi on port 8080, then it's running MJPEG streamer. And remember, I set up a systemd service, so every time my Raspberry Pi boots, it runs MJPEG streamer. So I can get a stream of, this is my Pi camera right here. So you can see, you know, my hands in front of it, you know, there's a laser and all that. And it's nice, fast, 30 frames per second MJPEG stream uh, from here. So that's cool. But the problem is it's on my Pi and I need my cloud server or my little uh, Ubuntu machine to grab this stream and then broadcast it out just as a web uh, resource so that people can connect to my server or my little Ubuntu machine, virtual machine right now, and then it's gonna show this exact same stream from the Raspberry Pi. But it, it needs to be smart in that it's only gonna make one connection from my Ubuntu server down to my Raspberry Pi because you know I don't want every user that connects to my server to have to connect to my Raspberry Pi. That's gonna be a scaling bottleneck. You know, I'm only gonna support a few users. I wanna support hundreds of users. Uh, and so I looked around and this turned out to be a trickier problem than I thought because uh, this is kind of what's called a reverse proxy where you've got a server and it's in front of another server and people connect to that main server that's in front of the other server and then that main server proxies down to the server behind it uh, and can control like how many connections it makes. People typically use software like Nginx. Um, Nginx is a, it's a web server, but it's also like a highly optimized reverse proxy. Uh, really nice open source. It's similar like to Apache and some of those uh, web servers, but it's made to handle lots of load and it's made to do this type of reverse proxying. Uh, and I looked into it and it does support reverse proxying video streams, but it doesn't support the MJPEG stream that I have very well. The problem is it can proxy MJPEG, but it's dumb about it. It doesn't know that it can cache that stream or that it can only make one connection. So for every connection that goes into the Nginx server, it's gonna connect down to the Raspberry Pi, which blows away my whole uh, idea there. But I did look around and I saw a great little blog post here uh, from uh, this, uh, the, the Doble, I guess, .com, uh, talking about this exact same problem because he had an Octoprint server set up and Octoprint uses uh, MJPEG Streamer 
uh, which is what I'm using here to uh, use the Raspberry Pi as a camera. And he wanted, or she wanted to do the exact same thing of have, you know, just one connection from some cloud server down to the Pi. Uh, and they found out that there's actually a little Node.js tool called MJPEG Proxy, this thing here which is built to do exactly that. It's a Node.js module to proxy MJPEG requests. And this is the important part, supports multiple clients consuming a single stream. So that's exactly what I want. So this software is smart enough to make one connection to my Pi and then expose that as an MJPEG stream that any number of users can connect to, you know, limited just by the performance of the web server that's in front of this. Uh, so I was really happy to find this because I got a little worried that, man, this might not be possible. I actually saw some blog posts from some people that are trying to do this exact same thing and haven't stumbled on this MJPEG proxy yet. So uh, hopefully this kind of gets out there a little more as something interesting. The only annoying thing is that it's Node.js, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just, you know, I like to do everything in Python, but this isn't so bad. I mean, this is a good example where if there's a tool out there that's going to make your life easier and maybe it's not in the language that you're building your app around, you know, maybe you should look at ways to use that tool and interrupt with your app. Uh, luckily in my case, because the video stream is just a completely separate component and my Python code doesn't need to interact with it at all. Like it just literally needs to be rendered on a web page, then it's perfectly fine to use a Node.js tool for this. I think, you know, it doesn't matter what, what the language is. Uh, so let's get started. Let's, let's start using this. So I need to install this on my little virtual machine. Because remember, this is think of the virtual machine as my cloud server. Even though it's running on my Mac right now, this is my cloud server that's uh, eventually going to be up in like Amazon Web Services. So okay, uh, here's how you install Node.js on a current version of Ubuntu, which <laughs> it's always really annoying to install Node.js. I don't know why. It, uh, I, maybe it's just me, but it just seems like there's it changes so frequently that it's... Uh, it fails every time I try it, unfortunately. But uh, here's what I'm going to do. Since I'm using Ubuntu 16.04, uh, what I can do, apt-cache show package node.js. Uh, this is going to show me the current version. So the current version they have is 4.2.6. And if I go to node.js, I think they're up to like version 5 now. Uh, you know, tomorrow it could be version 6 for all we know. Um, let's see. Okay, so... Oh, they're up to 6.3 already. So 4.4.7 is the LTS version. Uh, I think we're okay with 4.2.6. So if I use the version of Node.js in Ubuntu 16.04, I'm going to get 4.2.6. That's probably okay. Now, I bet I'm going to kick myself in the butt for not getting the latest version. But uh, it's a much easier to install Node.js from the Ubuntu package manager first. And then if I later need to upgrade it, I can show you how to do it. But for now, let's try and use the Ubuntu packages. So here's what you want to install. You want to sudo apt-get install Node.js. Now you might think that's all I need. No, you don't. On Debian, you also need Node.js-legacy because by default, the node command is what most things expect to start Node.js. But years ago, there was some package in Debian called Node. And for whatever reason, even though Node.js is like probably one of the most popular pieces of software, uh, you know, the Debian guys are pretty staunch about, well, you can't take that name. Luckily, they added this Node.js legacy package, which forces the Node name to use Node.js and not, I, was, I think it was like some SQL server or something like that. Um, so, okay, so you want to install these. And then anytime you're installing Node.js, you probably also want to install NPM. That's their Node package manager. Uh, and in this case, I have to install NPM because 
that's how I install the MJPEG proxy. So I need to use NPM to do that. I guess I don't have to, you can get clone the code for it, but it's a little easier to do it this way. So, okay, run these commands and it's gonna install some software. Oh man, uh oh, it's gonna download 200 megabytes of software. Uh, so we might take a little second here to, uh, to get some of this data. Um, oh, I guess it's going pretty quick. Five megabytes, uh, 1.5 megabytes per second. So, uh, so I guess we have a little bit of time to kill. So we'll let this thing kind of finish here. Uh, but so what this is doing, this is going to download Node.js, and then I'll be able to start, um, you know, using Node.js. And uh, it's pretty simple as far as configuring this MJPEG proxy. So once Node.js is installed, they kind of show. So it doesn't really have. It's not a tool that you run. It's just some code that you need to invoke. And they give you an example here where basically you create this MJPEG proxy object like by kind of importing their, uh, their, their code basically that you've installed. And then it uses this tool called Express or this library called Express uh, because by default, the MJPEG proxy code doesn't know how to make a web server. It just knows how to serve up uh, an MJPEG image. And so this Express is kind of a, a Node.js framework for building simple web applications, kind of like Flask, but for Node.js. Uh, and I think we could probably find it here if we look for um, Express Node.js. Uh, this should tell us a little bit more about it. So yeah, it's just a web application framework. So that's what their code is using here. They're using Express, and this is actually Express code right here to say, okay, create a web endpoint called slash index1.jpg and to serve what you know whatever should be served on that instead of serving like a static web page or some you know fancy dynamic web page serve up this mjpeg proxy object that we create and when we create this we actually need to tell it here is the url of the mjpeg stream to download and access uh, and so that's, I want to set this URL to my Raspberry Pi. So then, you know, the MJPEG proxy code will connect to my Raspberry Pi, pull down its MJPEG stream from this URL. And then if someone accesses on my server, this slash index.jpg, it's going to go to this MJPEG stream and just grab the data and send it off. And then it's smart enough to only make one connection um, in this case. So... Okay, so it looked like that installed. So that luckily that was pretty quick. And then you can just double check if you run node-version, this tells you your node.js version. Okay, so let's make a directory for a little script that we're gonna create here. So we'll call this mjpeg proxy. It doesn't really matter what the name of this is. And let's connect to that. Uh, so there's nothing in here. Now uh, we can pretty much follow their instructions here, although they don't really give you a lot of instructions. Um, so I need to npm install mjpeg proxy. And I'm going to do that in this directory. So what this does is it will install this MJPEG proxy inside of this MJPEG proxy directory that I created. Um, and it's got to compile some code to do this, unfortunately, but it looks like it works. You can ignore these warnings. Um, you know, it's just annoying. If I guess Node.js is uh, very vocal about, you know, if things aren't in the right format, but it didn't fail. So that's all that matters. And then there's one other thing, since it's using that express framework, I also need to run npm install express. So we'll do that and that's gonna download that express uh, web framework. And that's a pretty quick, uh, easy install also. I don't think it compiles any code for this. So I always get a little bit worried when there's native code being compiled in Node.js because I've been burned so badly with 
just everything breaks all the time with it. Okay, so that's installed and you can see it creates this node modules directory in here. That's where it puts the code for these things. So I can only use these uh, modules inside of this MJPEG proxy directory. I didn't install these globally on the server, which I don't really need to install them globally because I'm only gonna have a script in here that's gonna use them. So, okay, let's make a little script then. We'll call this my uh, MJPEG proxy.js. Uh, script in here. So, okay. And then here's where I'm just going to grab their code basically. And let's just say, let's throw this in. And so let's just go through their code. So again, you know, this first line, this is going to import their library, the MJPEG proxy. This is going to import the express library. Uh, this is going to create an application using express, which I don't even know anything about express, but I know enough about web frameworks that this looks really familiar to me. Uh, so this is probably creating, you know, just the, the basics of your web app. And then this app.get, it looks like this is where you set up the routes typically, where a route is like, here is a destination on the web server that's going to be created. And then here's what should be served up on that destination. So I'll keep the index1.jpg the same, but I do need to change the actual URL that's going to be accessed. So it's not going to be this, uh, you know, whatever admin thing they had here. I need to get my little webcam. So if I go back to my MJPEG streamer, so this is my stream right here. Remember, this is still running. Uh, if I copy the image address for this, then we can see in the browser, this is just the raw stream. So I want this stream basically. So if I copy this URL, so you can see Raspberry Pi port 8080 and action stream, uh, that's what I want. So I'm going to paste that into here. Now, this only works on my network here, you know, because I'm trying to access Raspberry Pi. Uh, so I can't go and take this vagrant image and go run it in Amazon Web Services because it can't tunnel back to my machine here. I actually would need to open the port on my router and uh, give the actual IP address of my home network here, uh, which is okay. And that's something I'm gonna think about. We're not gonna solve this just yet in this video. I think the next video, we're gonna have to look at how I can you know, have something that's running outside of my network and accessing my stuff here. But for now, this is okay. So, uh, okay, so I'll save this. And then the next line, this is just gonna say that it's gonna run this little web server on port 8080. And this is the virtual machine that's gonna uh, have this port. So, you know, it's not the Raspberry Pi that we're using because because even, you know, you can see the Raspberry Pi itself is actually serving stuff on port 8080. It's that uh, MJPEG stream. So, okay, so let's save this and exit out of here. And then the way to run this, you just run node and you point it at your, uh, your code. And then there's no output for this. Like it's just, it's running right now. Now here's the tricky thing. How do I access this thing? Because it's running in my virtual machine. Uh, so I, you know, like what is the IP of my virtual machine? Like, how do I talk to that thing? So I'll show you what you need to do. And, uh, it's not pretty, like there are lots of ways to solve this. Um, so I just hit control C to stop the server. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to forward access to certain ports on my Mac that's running my virtual machine, my host computer. I'm going to forward those ports into the guest operating system or my Ubuntu server. So if someone accesses port 8080 on my Mac, that's actually going to access port 8080 on my virtual machine here. And I'll show you, it's actually really easy to do that. Um, so what you want to do, I'm, you know, I'm connected to my little virtual machine. I'm going to type exit to exit out of there. Now my virtual machine is still running right now. And the way you stop your virtual machine is you run vagrant halt and that's going to shut it down. Uh, and, but it won't destroy it. Uh, there is a destroy command, uh, which you saw me run, which actually deletes it. You don't want to run that one yet. 
Uh, so it's going to shut down my VM. And I'll show you, there's a really easy option in the Vagrant file that we can uh, tweak to do this port forwarding. Uh, there are other options. You can actually like do this network bridge where your virtual machine uh, will uh, basically look like a device on your network. I tried it and I ran into all kinds of problems with it. I, I'm not much of a network guy, so I'm just gonna do whatever is easy. All right, so let's edit the Vagrant file. And if you go down, they actually show right here, here is an example of a forwarded port. So I'm just gonna uncomment this. Now they're using uh, the guest port 80, which is usually your web port. But in my case, I need the guest port 8080 because the, the guest is, you know, your, your virtual machine and the host is the machine that's running your virtual machine, my Macintosh. So I'll keep port 8080. So as long as I access my Macintosh on port 8080, it should tunnel through to my guest, uh, my Linux machine on port 8080. So I'll save that. And then uh, to start the, the server up again, just run Vagrant up and it's, uh, it's quick the second time you run it. It doesn't need to download that whole operating system image. It's saved it already. So it's just starting up VirtualBox with that image. Uh, and then it's uh, good to go in a second here. So it sets up all that. So you can actually see here, forwarding ports, it's set up that 8080 uh, port forward, uh, which we didn't see before. It's also, by default, it's doing port 22, which is SSH. That's how it can use that uh, Vagrant SSH command. So we'll let it do its thing right here. And it's gonna take it a second. And then when it starts up again, remember, I don't have it set up to automatically run that little MJPEG proxy script yet. So I'm gonna need to connect and, and manually start it up. And then let's see what happens. Hopefully it's gonna uh, proxy through to my Raspberry Pi. So we'll give this a second here. It's just doing its magic, it looks like. Uh, starting up the, the machine in the background. I love tools like Vagrant though, where it's like, they take a complex thing and make it easy and usable by mortals, I would say, because, you know, like virtual machines aren't hard, but there's just so many config options and ways to set it up. I love how simple they made it. Okay, it's running right now. So now I can run, oops, Vagrant SSH, and it's gonna connect to the machine. And in a second here, we should be inside the machine. So it's like Inception, you know, how many levels? I wonder if you could run a Vagrant VM inside of a Vagrant VM, that could be kind of fun. Okay, so I'm in my machine and you know, the state of my machine is the same. It doesn't start fresh again. Like it remembers your file system and everything there. So I'm gonna go into that MJPEG proxy directory. Now let's run node MJPEG proxy.js. So that's running. Okay, now the big test. So this is my Raspberry Pi. Here's the web stream, looking good there. Now let's go to uh, I'm gonna connect to localhost because you know I'm on my Macintosh, so I can just connect to localhost, port 8080. But remember, I set this up to run under index1.jpg. So if I access this, hey, look at that. That's pretty cool. So you can see it's proxying it. It's pretty fast too. Like, you know, you can see from both these videos as I move my, my hand around here, so. So that's great. So it looks like this MJPEG streamer uh, or MJPEG proxy is working. Now I'm gonna take their word for it that they're only making one connection to the Raspberry Pi. Who knows, uh, you know, maybe there's a problem and maybe it's not. Uh, might be interesting to think about are there ways I could actually test that? You know, I could probably look at like 
how many connections are being made to MJPEG streamer or something like that. But I'm gonna, since they advertise it as they're only making one connection, I'm gonna assume that they're doing the right thing there. So cool, okay, so I mean, that part of this is solved at this point. You know, if I put this into a cloud server, then it looks like I can just set up MJPEG proxy and it's gonna do the right thing. And then in my cloud server, now the URL that I would use for my video stream would be, you know, my cloud server port or uh, domain name or whatever, you know, the, the host name for it, whatever port I'm running it on, you know, and, and it's going to be able to serve it up and presumably support a lot more users here. So, okay, so that's cool. So now let's do the next half of it. Uh, the next part is I want to be able to have, you know, things running on my virtual machine here. And um, I guess I'll stop this proxy. So this this is uh, maybe for the next video um, we can come back and you know the next step would be let's make a little systemd script that starts this mjpeg proxy.js automatically on boot so maybe that's homework if you watched the second video i think it was i think it was either boy i can't remember which one it was uh, i think it was the second video i did a systemd service that starts up mjpeg streamer on the raspberry pi so that exact same stuff should work to create a script to start up this MJPEG proxy on this server. So I, maybe I won't do it now, but try it yourself and see if you can do it. Uh, but that would be maybe the next step to automate this. But anyways, like I was saying, so now let's do the next thing of letting this cloud server here control the camera. And so if we go back to you know my little diagram here, um, I guess I'll hold this thing up. Uh, well, maybe that's not that easy to see here. So if I put it over here, so remember, I was thinking about like, how do I send these control messages from my cloud server down to my Raspberry Pi right here? And you know, I could have like a web server where it's making web requests over to the Raspberry Pi. Uh, but I'd mentioned MQTT as an interesting option. So if I ran like a little broker for MQTT on my cloud server, I could have my Pi connect to it. And MQTT servers have a lot of options. Like you can do encryption, uh, with like TLS, the uh, transaction, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, transport layer security. You can use you know TLS to encrypt that. You can use certificates to authenticate so that I can have a special certificate that's only on the Raspberry Pi and only on my cloud server. And then my MQTT broker can be smart enough to say, I'm only gonna allow connection for someone that has this special server, you know, this or this special certificate that's been shared ahead of time or this secret key. Uh, and that's powerful because that gives an easy way to secure this where I can make sure that, you know, no rogue person is going to come in and start sending control messages to my Pi, uh, you know, without being authenticated for it. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted for the next step to to look at this option of running an MQTT broker on my little uh, Ubuntu machine here, eventually my cloud uh, machine, and having some code on my Raspberry Pi come over and connect to that broker and then listen for control signals that say, you know, hey, move your laser to this position or move your laser to that position. Uh, and then I'm not gonna do it in this video, but we can come back and encrypt that connection. You know, we can set up these shared uh, certificates or these shared keys that, that encrypt the connection and then authenticate it, that make it a little more secure. Uh, so that it just simplifies the process a lot. And there are a lot of powerful things I can do once I'm running an MQTT server. Like, you know, I can send messages from the Pi to my cloud server if I wanted. So like if the Raspberry Pi wanted to say, you know, hey, I've got my MJPEG streamer running, and by the way, here's the URL for it, then I could have something running on my cloud server that listens for that message. 
And when it receives that, it could maybe go and configure that MJPEG proxy uh, at, you know, node module and, and start running it against the URL that I configured for it. So cool things I think could happen uh, by doing this. So that's what I want to do. So I'm still in my cloud server here. So I need to have an MQTT broker installed. Uh, and luckily there's a good one. I've actually shown this, um, oh, let's see, if I do apt cache search Mosquito. Mosquito is a really nice MQTT broker, uh, open source, very excellent uh, piece of software. So I'm going to install Mosquito. That gives me the broker. And then I'm also going to install Mosquito clients because this gives me some command line tools that let me uh, send and receive messages uh, from my broker here. So let's do sudo apt-get install uh, Mosquito and Mosquito clients. So this could install the server. And the nice thing is by default, the Mosquito server on Ubuntu and Debian, it's configured, it's gonna start automatically. And it, for better or worse, it has no uh, authentication at all when it starts up. So it's just an open MQTT server, which is okay because everything's still within my network right now. But like I said, we're gonna have to come back later and lock this thing down. Um, so, okay, so it's installed. Uh, and I, if I remember correctly, it puts its configuration in etc. Mosquito. And so, yeah, if I look here, there's a mosquito.conf. And then this just points it, this is kind of the Debian convention. Uh, they have these conf.d uh, folders. So if I go into conf.d, then I can see, I can drop in my own custom configurations and things here uh, for this. So, but I don't actually need to change anything here. I was just kind of showing, you know, this is where this config lives. We're gonna come back later and mess with this. So, okay, I've got my broker running. Now again, I have to forward ports because by default, the MQTT broker listens on port 1883. And so my virtual machine has that port open, but I need my Pi to be able to connect to my virtual machine. My virtual machine is not on my network, it's inside of my Mac. So let's do that port forwarding again. So I'm gonna exit out here, I'm gonna vagrant halt my uh, VM, and then I'm going to edit that vagrant file. And I can just add an extra port forward to it, it's really easy. So we'll give this a second here, and it's gonna shut down the, the VM, so let it do its thing. There we go. And then if I edit the Vagrant file, I can just add a new line uh, down here. So we say config.vm.network forwarded port and guest port 1883 to host 1883. So anything that connects to my Macintosh on port 1883 is gonna just tunnel through to my uh, little virtual machine here, which is then gonna connect to the, the MQTT broker that's on there. So we'll do that. Now, once this thing goes into a, a real cloud server on like Amazon AWS, I don't need to do this port forwarding stuff because when it's a real server, it's got you know real network connections. It has maybe a host name, maybe a domain name assigned to it. Uh, so I don't need to do this. It's only because I'm using these virtual machines like this. So let's uh, let's start my server up again. So we'll vagrant up the server, and I'm not even going to connect to it right now. Well, I guess I will. Uh, eventually, I'm going to show some stuff with it. So we'll SSH back into it, and in a second. Oh, I just noticed. Uh, I messed something up. It's showing port 1882 to 1883. So uh, I'm gonna have to shut it down again and, and try it again here. So I'm sure people noticed as I was typing this. That's the funniest thing of uh, doing it live. It's like, as you're making a mistake, <laughs> it's like you, you can only imagine the people screaming like, no, you mistyped that. So uh, you have to bear with, bear with me uh, as we do this. So, okay, waiting for it to boot. So it takes it a second here. 
It always blows me away, uh, virtual machines. I don't know, you know, I remember when I started using computers, it was uh, back when we had a 486, and there's, there's no, con like you could never emulate a machine inside of a 486. So uh, it was only maybe within the last 10 years or so that I really started using virtual machines. And you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing to have just a clean machine you can start up. Okay, let's halt this machine and fix my mistake here. So, all right, stop. Uh, and then edit that Vagrant file in a second here. So, uh, attempting a graceful shutdown. I wonder if it has like a force shutdown mode. You know, I, what can I get a non-graceful shutdown of this VM, like yank the power cord effectively? All right, so let's edit the Vagrant file and fix that stupid mistake. So we'll go, uh, oh, wow. I just, uh, I tried to use alt to, uh, to move over word by word and that didn't do what I thought. Okay, 183 to 183, there we go. Now I could have lived with it if my host port was 1882, uh, but I really need 1883 on my guest because that's what the mosquito uh, server is listening to. So let's up this thing again. And now I should hopefully see that it's uh, 1883 on this. So, okay, we'll give this a second. So there we go. Yeah, it looks like we've got the right ports forwarded. Okay, cool. So while this is doing its thing, uh, I'm going to go to my Raspberry Pi and let's install the same stuff on my Raspberry. I don't need to install Mosquito on my Raspberry Pi, but I do want to install Mosquito Clients. Um, I think it was underscore or maybe it was dash. I think dash is the convention. Um, see that or underscore we'll find out in a second here okay there we go yeah so you know let's just install their client tool because this is a quick way that I can test that I can connect to my broker real fast uh, by using these client tools so we'll let that do its thing and this is doing its thing too so uh, which one is gonna finish first it's a race here let's see so nope the Raspberry Pi is still doing some stuff there we go I think we're just about ready to connect to my vagrant box so it's going along I try to think if uh, if they're going to be long delays, you know, waiting for stuff to run. I need like a game or something I can run in the background uh, for this. So, but I didn't have one ready to go here. So, I want to play the new Doom. Uh, man, I heard so many good things about that. I haven't haven't gotten a chance to play, but I love everything I heard. Is that um, you know the new Doom like graphically is a major improvement over the old ones, but they went back to that fast style of Doom where it was just like you know constant fighting and action, which I miss. You know modern shooters and things aren't aren't the same anymore. Okay, so our server is running. Let's wait for the Pi, uh, and it's all, we're almost done here. Uh, I'm, I guess I can SSH into my server here. So this is my little Ubuntu Linux machine. We're just connecting to it, so that's all good. And then the Pi, uh, it's still installing here. We'll give it a second to, to finish its thing. Uh, but anyway, so maybe I'll talk a little bit more about what I'm thinking of doing. So on the Pi, you know, n what I want to do is I want to make a script that's going to run and connect to my um, MQTT broker and then listen for like a laser target message. So I'll send a message that says, you know, target this pixel that was clicked because remember it shows you know the whole screen image and then people click on certain pixels on the screen and that will direct the laser to try and point to that pixel so i want to listen for those control messages effectively so okay i think we're finally done okay so on the pi let's try to connect to so mosquito pub is the tool that you can use to publish a message to a broker 
Uh, and then there's a mosquito sub that you can use to listen for a message. So I'll go back. This is my virtual machine, my Ubuntu machine. Let's subscribe to a message, uh, or a topic rather. So we'll say mosquito sub. Now by default, mosquito sub is going to connect to a broker that's running on the local machine. So I don't, I don't need to tell it the host name and the port of my broker, uh, but I do need to tell it a topic to subscribe to. So we'll just say the foo topic uh, for that. So, okay, so it's connected and it's listening for any messages on the foo topic. Now, if I go to my Pi and if I do uh, mosquito pub, and for this, I need to say which topic I wanna publish on. So it's the foo topic. Give it a message, which is just like, how about hello world? Uh, I don't wanna use an exclamation. This always burns me in bash. If you use an exclamation with double quotes, it's gonna try and interpret that. So don't do that. Um, and then I need to tell it the server to connect to, which is the dash H option, it looks like. So I need to give it dash H. Now my Pi, remember, because I do that port forwarding, my Pi needs to connect to my Mac on port 1883. And then my Mac is gonna forward to the virtual machine that it's running. So I'm just gonna give the host name of my Mac, which is Tony iMac. So let's do that. Okay, it fired off a message. And then if I go back here, hey, look at this. It received the hello world message. So cool. Looks like my broker's working on my virtual machine. The port forwarding is good. So everything's looking good there. I'm going to just cancel out of that subscription here. So, okay. So let's get some code running on my Raspberry Pi that connects to this uh, MQTT broker and starts listening for some of these messages. So to do that, uh, what I'm gonna use is a library that I've, I've shown before, this paho-mqtt library, really nice Python library that you can use to connect to MQTT servers, listen and send messages and stuff. Uh, so let's do that. So on my Raspberry Pi, I'm gonna make a new directory. Let's make uh, pi dash cat laser, uh, cat laser two. And then let's go inside of there. Uh, oh, not my pi cat laser. I want to go into pi cat laser dash two. So, okay, so there's nothing in here. And then I have uh, connected here. I also have some notes here that uh, to remind myself what to install. Uh, this is my Raspberry Pi. So I'm using this little, uh, uh, what is it called? This Mac Fusion tool. I've shown this thing a million times. It, it mounts my Pi as a SSH. Uh, file system, which then I can access locally. So long story short, here's the PyCat Laser 2 directory. So there's nothing in here right now. So let's make, uh, well, let, let's let's start with some files. So if I go back to my original PyCat Laser, uh, which I'm trying to remember which one it was. Yes, it's, this was the code from the last video, the Py, remember I, I just went back and installed my old PyCat Laser code. Um, so what I want to do here is I'm, I'm going to grab some of the code that I was using from here. So I'm going to grab the servos.py. Remember, this is the code that interfaces with the servo board. So I'm going to grab that. Uh, let's grab the server.py. That's the web server that it runs, even though I'm not going to use it. Um, I'll show you. It could be useful. Model.py. That was um, a model for... Uh, I'll, I'll show you what it is. It just simplifies how I access the cat laser code. Uh, I'm going to grab this calibration.json because it saves its calibration as far as like screen coordinates to servo location. So I'm gonna save that because I'm gonna end up using it also here. The rest of the stuff I don't actually need to copy this. Adafruit I squared C, uh, it doesn't use this anymore. Cause remember in the last video, I switched it over to use the Adafruit PCA 9685 library that I uh, that I created and it's installed on the Raspberry Pi already. So you know, I'm just gonna copy these files over and let's put them into my Pi Cat Laser 2 directory. So we'll just paste these in here. Uh, and so now I can see these things. So, okay. So again, here's servos.py and let's real fast just fix 
uh, tabs to spaces. I love the Atom text editor. They have this convert tabs. Oh, oh, I just did the exact opposite of what I want to do. Tabs to spaces. So this is nice. Now I just convert everything to, to spaces. Long ago, I, I wrote Python code with tabs, and I'm sorry. I apologize for that. It's uh, well, I, I've slowly converted everything over to use uh, spaces because it makes a little more sense uh, for this. Anyways, so this code doesn't need to change. This is just the code that controls my servo x and y axis. Uh, the server.py, this was the main Flask web server, and uh, I'm not going to run this code, but, you know, this gave me all these little APIs of, like, you know, controlling the x-axis and the y-axis of the servo. Uh, there's a target API where the web page would do a put request against this that would say, okay, here's the x and the y pixel to, uh, to target with the laser. So I, I kind of want to recreate this, but using MQTT messages, basically. So I need something to listen, and I want to have like a target message that includes the X and Y location, and then does basically this code right here, like call the model.target function. Uh, and if I look at the model, this actually has all the logic of how to convert from screen coordinates to servo positions. It does this transformation, and I, I remembered now, I forgot how I did this. Um, I use NumPy to do this inverse. Um, I have to do like, I have to solve this equation. I forgot how advanced I made this. Um, so I, I do this like inverse perspective transformation here, which I don't even know if it's right. Uh, you know, like I said before in the previous video, it, it, it's, it's good, but it's not perfect. So it's close enough. But anyways, you know, this model.py hides all that logic so that it just has high level functions like target, you know, give me an X and Y pixel. And then it does all that conversion automatically. I don't need to worry how that stuff works. So I, I was smart in how I broke this code out. Uh, you know, me three years ago, nice job. Uh, this makes it a lot easier for me three years later to, uh, to work with this code. And this model, this deals with, it'll save and load this calibration JSON file. So this is great. I don't need to touch any of this code. I'm just gonna use it as is. Um, but what I do need to do is I need to create some code in here. So let's make a new file. I'm just going to call this like driver.py. And this is going to be the thing that's going to connect to my MQTT broker and then listen for that target message like I, I mentioned here. So um, so let's do that. Let's uh, I, I've got my driver.py and let's just start by connecting to the MQTT broker. So I'm going to go to this Paho page and I'm going to grab their uh, simple little example here of, you know, the get started, like the basics of connecting to an MQTT server. Uh, now, before I run this, I need to install the Paho library. And so the easy way to do that, uh, I'm just going to run sudo pip3, because remember, I'm using Python 3 for everything. pip3 install paho-mqtt. Um, I've already installed it, so this is going to be a real quick thing, but this is going to install it for you. Um, that's it. That's all you need to do to install it, and we're good after that point. So back to our driver code. Okay, so uh, for this, I'm going to put some configuration at the top, like how about my MQTT server, So just so I can easily change this. So for now, it's Tony-iMac, you know, my, my iMac. And let's put port in here also. It's smart to break this out, and that's 1883. And then down here, this client connect call is actually what uh, picks the server name. So I'm just going to replace this with, uh, oops, MQTT server, and then MQTT port. And then this third parameter is your uh, idle timeout keep alive or something like that. It's like every 60 seconds, it's going to send a little ping up to the MQTT server to say, hey, I'm still connected. I'm still alive. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't freak out. So, okay. And then the way the Paho library works, you create this client object, you set these callback functions. 
Uh, and then these callbacks will be called whenever certain events happen, like you're connected to the MQTT server. So up here, they have a callback that's called. And a good thing to do once you're connected is to subscribe to a topic on the server because you can't subscribe until you're connected to the server. Uh, so that's a smart thing. That's what they do here. And then on message, this is called whenever a message is received on any topic. And you can actually see it'll give you, <clears throat> excuse me, the topic. Uh, so you can look at that topic and see, you know, is this one that I, I cared about? So, you know, let's uh, let's keep most of this code the same. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, I don't really care about the result code. So let's just say that we've connected um, in here. And then let's subscribe to a different topic. And in fact, let's make this a, uh, a configuration option I can change up here. Let's say topic for target equals, um, let's say this is cat laser uh, slash target. So, you know, in MQTT, a topic can be any string and they like to use a convention of putting slashes so that you have like a hierarchy. So I can imagine, you know, I might have a topic that's like, you know, uh, I don't know, laser control. Like if I want to turn the laser on and off or something like that, you know, I could have cat laser slash laser. And so maybe I could send an on or an off message <clears throat> to that. So that's, that's my thinking here for how I, I break this out. So, okay, so once I subscribe, or once I connect, I wanna make sure I subscribe to the, the targeting topic. So I say target, uh, topic target. And then when I receive a message here, uh, what they're doing is they're just printing out the topic and then printing out the payload or the, the data that was received. So let's do that, but let's do this in a more Pythonic uh, way. Let's use format strings. So we'll say uh, this, that, and then format, message topic, uh, comma, the uh, message payload, it's fine to do it either way. Just string concatenation, um, it, it makes so much sense of like, you know, foo plus bar, but especially in C++ and other languages, you might not realize there is a big performance hit for doing something like this because what's happening is a temporary string is being created to hold the contents of foo plus bar. Uh, and especially in C++, if you put that this kind of code into a tight loop, you're going to get really bad performance and memory uh, usage and not even realize it because this just looks like natural code, especially to people that just learn C++. It's like, especially when they taught it in the 90s when I learned it, it was like, yeah, operator overloading is the best thing in the world. And nowadays, I think we've kind of realized operator overloading, like look at the boost library where they go crazy with that maybe not the best thing in the world to go crazy with. So that's a rant for another day. Uh, that's why I like to use this syntax where it looks a little weirder, but uh, and I haven't timed this. Like I could be totally wrong. Like, you know, they might've optimized it so that plus strings are, are super fast. But to me, this makes more sense where, you know, I'm trying to combine two strings and maybe add some extra formatting to it. So that's why I like to use this format. But for now, anyways, let's just print the message out uh, like this. I'm not going to do any of this uh, logic yet. You know, we're just connecting and listening on this cat laser target topic um, effectively. Now there's one extra callback I want to add. Let's do an on disconnect. And they document this on the PAHO page. You can learn all about it on here, but I'll show you what you need to do. So your callback needs to take in a client, a user data, and an RC, which is a result code. Um, and then here, let's just say disconnected with RC, and then uh, let's format out, oops, format the RC. So we'll just print it out. Uh, so this is good to know that like I disconnected. And in fact, let's add 
uh, the sys library from Python. And let's just force my program to exit if I get disconnected from my MQTT server. So we'll say sys.exit, uh, how about one? Uh, so that just says, you know, it's a non-zero exit code. Something went wrong effectively. So I was disconnected. Um, I guess I could even disconnect with the, the, the result code if I really cared, but uh, let's just do disconnect with one. And then one last thing I need to do, I need to do client.onDisconnect. I need to hook it up to tell it, you know, by the way, I have this onDisconnect function that you should call. Uh, and then, okay, so the client connect is going to connect to the server. Um, it's going to continue on. And then I've talked about this before. When you use Paho MQTT, you need to run a message loop because something needs to run in the background to listen for these messages and call the appropriate callbacks. Because I'm not doing anything else in this script and I'm just waiting to receive messages like this, I'm going to use their loop forever one, which is it's, it's going to run forever in an infinite loop uh, for me. So that's fine. But maybe I'll be nice and we'll say print press control C to quit, just to let the user know. So, okay, so let's go to our Pi and let's uh, let's run that. So let's run Python 3, my driver.py. And, oh, I did something wrong here. So let's see, I, I probably missed like a parenthesis or something on here. Um, so, yep, I missed a parenthesis, there we go. So um, that's kind of annoying. You would think that Python could you know, uh, I guess it's a really hard parsing problem to figure out, you know, where did you intend this parenthesis to be? But that would be nice if it could say, hey, dummy, you uh, you dropped a parenthesis here. I wonder if in the future, if programming languages, you know, could could the Python code be smart enough to say, oh, you missed a parenthesis here. I'm just going to edit your source file and add it. You know, <laughs> just we're going to fix it for you. Uh, anyways, okay, so this is good. I got my connected message. So that tells me that at least uh, my connected callback was called. I should be subscribed to this topic. So let's go back to my server now. And uh, remember, the broker is running on the server here, so I should be able to publish a message from my server. I could even publish from my Mac. Um, I don't think I have the Mosquito client tools installed. Let's see if I do. Uh, mosquito pub? Ah, I do. Okay, let's try it from the Mac. What the heck? So let's do mosquito pub. And the topic I want to use, remember, it's cat laser uh, slash target. The message I want to send, let's just send foo. Uh, and then the host, uh, I, I could tell, I need to tell it to connect to the Mac, to localhost, which it assumes by default, but I'll just be explicit and we'll say localhost here. So, okay, so I run that. And now if I go back to my Pi, hey, look at this, printed out cat laser target, and then the byte string foo. So that's basically this on message callback. So I received this message, that's cool. And you know, I can go and send another message here. I can say like, uh, you know, how about one, two, three, comma, four, five, six. So then if I go back to my Pi, I received this. So you can imagine like, that's how I'm thinking I want this API to work effectively. So if I receive a message on the cat laser target topic, I'm gonna expect that it has two numbers like the X coordinate comma the Y coordinate. And so I can parse out those two numbers and then I'll know, okay, here's the X and Y coordinates to target the laser with. Uh, so let's do that, let's put that code in. And I'll show you, uh, so basically I need to parse out the message payload right here and you know grab, like I'm gonna expect a comma inside of there. Uh, one thing I'll show you, I found a really nice little Python library. Like you could use regular expressions to do this. You could just use string functions in Python. Uh, but there's a really nice library called I, I found called parse that's basically the inverse of string.format. So, you know, if I go back to Python and, uh, you know, if I do uh, 
how about like zero and like one uh, dot format and I put like one and two in here you know that prints out that the parse is the inverse of this where I can say okay I have a string and I have a format string like you know zero space one and I want to take this string you know maybe this string is like foo comma bar or foo space bar and I want to process it with this format string and parse out these uh, kind of bracket values that are inside of here. So then it's smart enough to give me back, you know, oh, your first value is foo, because I found this space in between here uh, in your message. And then the second value is bar. So really nice thing. I mean, it's really just kind of a wrapper, I assume, around regular expressions but it makes it a little bit easier uh, to do this stuff. And it's super easy to install it and use it. So I figured, what the heck, let's use it. Now to use it, I need to do sudo pip3, remember Python 3, install parse. And that's just gonna install the module in Python 3. I've already got it installed, so we're good to go. Uh, and then to use it, they just show you, it's you just import parse, and then there's a parse function. It's as simple as the first string you send it is your format string, and the second string is your inputs. It's gonna try and match up your input with your format string, and then parse out any of these little special values that you've kind of identified inside of there, and return those as this result object. And it actually has a whole syntax. It can like explicitly look for like, if I want something to be like just all digits, like a number, an integer, I can tell it that, and it will ensure that it parses out those values, just like a regular expression effectively, but I find this syntax a lot easier because the Python regular expression uh, module is a little old and crusty, I would say. Like it's, so you have to like deal with these match objects and groups inside of there. So that's why I like parse. This makes it a lot simpler. So let's use this then. So let's import parse and I'll put it down here uh, because it's not a Python module. You know, the PEP8 convention is all of your Python modules first and then all of your uh, third-party libraries after that. So, okay, so I import parse, and then in my code here, okay, so now the one thing to know is that, you know, I can subscribe to multiple topics. Like, in fact, let's just add, let's subscribe to the uh, laser topic, so topic underscore laser. And then now in my on message callback, it's gonna receive both messages for my target and laser topic. So I need to differentiate between those. So I'm just gonna do an if clause. You know, this this could turn into a big if else statement where like for every single topic, I'm gonna have a different else clause in here. But uh, you know, that's just this kind of dispatch problem where you know, you've got multiple messages coming in and somewhere you need some code that needs to know about all those different types and dispatches to the appropriate things. So. Uh, so anyway, so if my message.topic equals topic target, then I need to interpret my payload with the parse. Um, so I basically want to parse out uh, a number comma number from the payload. So let's do that. Let's say my result equals parse module.parse function. And then the format string I'm going to tell it is colon D. And so that's using this little um, format syntax here where it says, okay, I'm gonna expect just digits, like an integer number inside of here because my screen coordinates are only digits, only integers. And then comma, um, another value, which is also a, a set of digits here. And then the value to parse out is the payload, message not payload. Now, gotcha with Python 3. Um, you might've noticed as it was printing out stuff um, let's see, where were we at on the Raspberry Pi? 
uh, yeah, here we go. So like you can see, you know, when I received a message, it has this B in front of it. And that means that this is a byte string. So this is not the text one, two, three, four, five, six. This is the bytes, which happen to be represented by the ASCII characters one, two, three, four, five, six. And in, in Python 2, there was no distinction between these. Bytes and text were the exact same thing. In Python 3, there is a distinction, and it will burn you badly when you get it wrong. Like, it, it just won't work. You'll get exceptions that are like, hey, you're trying to interpret bytes as a string, and you can't do that. And it's, it's very confusing, especially even as an experienced Python programmer moving to Python 3, you run into all these problems. And there's a good rationale for it. The rationale is that Python 3 added like native support for Unicode because when you have a bunch of bytes, sure, I can interpret them as the ASCII characters foo or one, two, three, but that's not the only way to interpret bytes as characters. There are multiple ways to do it. There's UTF-8, UTF-16, all these different text encodings. And honestly, it makes your head hurt thinking about them. Like, uh, especially in the early 90s, uh, again, when I was learning all this stuff, it's just like, man, we made a real mess of Unicode in my opinion. Uh, so anyways, the end result is whenever you see these byte strings in Python 3 and you really want a string because the parse library does deal with strings. It has to be a string. It doesn't know how to parse a byte string. You need to decode that byte string as a text string and you need to explicitly tell it the character encoding so you can use this decode function and in this case uh, you can say utf8 you can even say ascii um, honestly i don't know what the paho library sends you back if it's sending you back utf8 bytes or ascii bytes now it just so happens that the low range of UTF-8 is exactly the same as ASCII. So it's gonna work either way for me, uh, but I probably should look at the PAHO MQTT documentation and see like just what the heck, you know, formatting. Like I'm assuming that MQTT supports Unicode. In fact, I'm betting that MQTT doesn't even care. I'm betting that it's, uh, you know, just it's bytes as far as the broker is concerned. It's probably more the MQTT pub tool. You know, the thing that I used to send this message, uh, I'm guessing this is just sending it as the ASCII bytes, but it could be sending Unicode. Like if I put, you know, some kind of crazy like umlaut character in here, um, boy, I always accidentally get it to happen. I think if I do control uh, alt, that oh there we go yeah so i don't know let's see what happens if i do this i'm kind of curious this this might like cause things to explode here but um let's let's run my uh my code here again let's just comment this out because i just want to see like what this thing prints out as so let's run our driver again and see what happens here so i'm going to send something uh and then i'm going to receive okay so yeah notice notice this um it sent two bytes for that single character. So this is a Python byte string. And then this slash X, that means the hex, uh, like the hex code. So it sent C4B1 for this wacky character that I sent there. I'm assuming that's Unicode um, because UTF-8, if I remember correctly, can expand out into 16 bits for some of these things. Uh, Unicode makes my head spin, so I try not to deal with it. Anyways, long story short, it looks like I should probably decode this as UTF-8. 
So let's try that. We'll say UTF-8. But, you know, like I said, it could be 16. Who knows what it could be? Uh, it's uh, kind of a painful thing. Uh, anyway, so, okay. Uh, so I've parsed out my data, and then the way this works, you know, I might get a message that doesn't have numbers, like foo comma bar. And in that case, if it can't parse the data, you get none back as a result. So I want to check and see if my result is not none. So if it means if I got something, then the way I can access my, uh, my data. So I, for now, let's just print out, you know, target X uh, and then Y. And then let's just uh, print out. And so the, the values are result zero and result one. So it's, it's like an array kind of. It gives you access to these two things that are parsed out there. So let's save that. And now let's run our uh, driver again. And then now let's send a message, but let's not send that crazy Unicode character, but we'll try it again. We'll see what happens. Okay, so I sent that. And if I go back, hey, look at that. So target X, one, two, three, four, five, six. And just to show that it's smart enough. So, you know, if I'm gonna send that crazy character where that's not a digit. So let's send that thing and see what happens. And so now notice here, okay, so it still received the message because this top thing printed out, but we didn't see that target. So the parse call, couldn't parse a number out of there, which is good. And so it didn't go on and do this logic here. So that all seems like goodness. I think we're pretty darn close here. Uh, we're just gonna do the last thing now. So let's put the logic to move our laser inside of here. So I'm gonna go back to my server and basically I need to get this model object because this is the thing that has the target function that I wanna call. Uh, so in order to do that, I'm gonna copy out all the configuration that I had in here because this sets up like, you know, what's the I squared C address of my driver board and all that kind of stuff, which I wanna keep the same. So let's do that. Let's put it into my uh, config up here. And uh, you know, sure, we'll just put this all together. Although I'll put this separately. So MQTT topics uh, for control messages, we'll put down here. And then let's convert tabs to spaces because I did that poorly three years ago. So, well, ah, geez, I did it again. I hit the wrong thing. There we go. Okay, so, and then let's, this is the mess that happens when you combine tabs and spaces that uh, everything doesn't line up correctly. So uh, we'll fix that. And then now I need to create that model uh, object. So let's go back to my server and see how it does it. So this is the line that it creates it with. So I'll put that there. But in order to do that, I need to import the model um, because that tells Python that I need to use that library. And so I'm going to put it down here because this is the model file that's in the same directory. So it's going to import this file right here. Uh, and then I'm not done yet. I need to go back to my server.py. And the model itself needs to have a servo object because the servo object is like the uh, interface to the servos. I did that so I could easily test it without moving the servos around. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm just going to copy the code out where I initialize the servos and we're not going to get that fancy in my driver code here. So let's do this and then let's put my import back at the top uh, up here. So this is just going to import this servos.py file right here. Uh, inside of here. So, okay, so at this point now, I've got my model object. It's just a global variable. I'm gonna keep it that way, it's fine. Uh, and now, let's try it. Let's do model.target my, um, you know, let's, let's, let's be nice. Let's do um, x, y equals result. I think I can do this. Let's see if this works. I don't know if it's gonna do tuple unpacking. 
I, I hope it's smart enough to just grab the first two. I don't know, let's see. I feel like I should know uh, whether Python supports this or not, but we'll find out in a second. And then let's target the X and Y coordinates for that. So, okay, we'll do that. Let's stop our old code. Let's run our new code. And it's connected. Okay, big test. So it's all fired up and ready to go. It's like, we've got power on here. So if I send a target message and a, a good one that has, you know, like actual real coordinates, then it should move the servo. Now I'm gonna, because my screen is 640 by 480, uh, I'm gonna tell it to move to the direct center. So let's go to 320 by 240. So let's try it. This is gonna send off a message on that cat laser topic. So I hit that and hey, look, the uh, servo just moved. So, and I can, I can move it to a different position. So let's say like position 300 to 240, you know, so it slightly moved it a little bit. So, you know, let's move further, maybe like 200 to 240 and see, notice it just slid over more um, in that position. So that's pretty cool. And if I go back to my Pi, you know, you can see it's receiving these are different target commands that it received. Uh, and so now it's calling that target option. So, uh, so that's basically what I wanted to show in this video. You know, I, it, it, it's the first start of separating out the cat laser project into two different components. So I've got one thing that runs on the Raspberry Pi and we've almost got that completely finished. I mean, we've got the MJPEG streamer that's using the Pi camera and exposing a nice little MJPEG uh, stream. And then I've got this driver.py that's now running, connecting to an MQTT broker and listening for these target messages. And then later on, I'll show you how we're gonna secure that MQTT connection. But for now, you know, that broker could be anywhere. That broker could be running on the Raspberry Pi. It could be running in a virtual machine on my iMac, or it could be running on an AWS cloud server. It doesn't matter. Like my, my driver Python code here is just gonna connect to any server. Like as you saw in the configuration here, I can change this. This could be like a domain name of Amazon Web Services or whatever, and it's gonna go and connect there. And as long as I've got a broker running there, it can start sending it control messages. So that's really powerful because, you know, the, the old code, it was all in this web server code. So, you know, I had to send a web message that had to run on the Raspberry Pi with the servos connected to it. So that, you know, that doesn't scale. I can't break that apart to run in the cloud like this. Um, so that's, like I said, just the start of it. You know, I've got the basic control of the laser, uh, at least the targeting control. So, you know, I'm gonna need to think more about like what are all of the different topics that I need to expose as control points for my laser project here. So targeting is one, turning the laser on and off is probably another. Uh, now, if I go back to my old web server, I had a lot more endpoints. Like I let you explicitly set the X and the Y axis uh, of the servo so that you can move around the servo if you wanted. And I don't think I'm gonna expose those as control uh, points because you know, I don't want people to just arbitrarily take control of my servos. I want them to have to pick a screen location, you know, because they're aiming where to move the laser. Um, because I, you know, if I give people direct control, they might like move the servo into a bad spot that I don't want it. So, you know, I, I don't want to expose that as an interface, but it, it could still be useful to have just locally on the Raspberry Pi as like a configuration interface, but maybe we'll deal with that later. So, you know, I don't think I'm going to expose those. I do know for sure I need the target font uh, one that we built. So because this takes those screen coordinates. Uh, and then the other things I let you, I had some like, 
you could read the current position of the servos. But again, since I'm not gonna let people set the servos, I, maybe I'm not gonna expose that either because that just seems unnecessary in this case. And then you could set and save the calibration and stuff like that. But again, I don't really need to expose that. For someone to play this laser game, they just need to be able to target the laser and maybe turn it on and off and that's it. So those are really the only control messages that I think I need to expose for this. So that's, you know, I'm gonna think more about that, but I think that's basically all that I need to do. So, you know, just to wrap it up, I'll, I'll just kind of demo this again. It's, you know, this is, this is what we did in this video. So we basically created a little virtual machine that's running on my Mac uh, right here. It's running that MJPEG proxy server uh, code. So, and I, I don't have it running right now, but you know, it's doing that smart proxying of my MJPEG stream from my Pi camera so that now it can serve that stream to lots of users. And then it's also running this little MQTT broker, which if anything sends a target message to my driver code that's running on the Raspberry Pi will listen uh, for those messages. So if I send from you know my iMac here, I can say let's target 320, 240, and then boom, everything snaps into position just like that. So you know the next step will be on my virtual machine or on, on my cloud server, I need to now build a new web interface. And that web interface is gonna have, similar to the old web interface, you know, that target interface. But when it needs to target the laser, instead of making web requests like it did previously, uh, and then, you know, instead of like just directly talking to the Raspberry Pi servo controller, it's just gonna fire off an MQTT target message. So it's gonna do the exact same thing as, you know, this command. It's gonna say, okay, the, the user that's currently playing clicked on this location, so target the laser at that position uh, for that. So that's that's where we're gonna go with it in the next video. We're gonna see if we can make that kind of uh, web component for it. Um, and then uh, this is probably gonna turn into like a five-part series, I bet, because you know maybe next video we'll do how to, you know, we'll do the web server part that runs on the cloud server and, you know, talks those MQTT control messages. And then I think the last thing is gonna be, you know, let's do a real complete, like, I, you know, I'm gonna have to have this queue system of like people waiting in line to play and stuff like that. So, uh, and someone had commented earlier too, that like, do you really want the internet to control uh, your laser around your cat? Which is a very good point. Like, I, especially if I'm streaming this live, I don't know, uh, I'm still thinking about that. Maybe I'll do like a private thing where like, uh, you know, we, we give out the URL to some friends that can use this thing uh, in, in a safe manner. Or, you know, like maybe I can build a little kill switch where, you know, if I press a button, it just stops control of whoever's using the uh, the current server. So I am cognizant of that. I don't want to hurt my cat. Uh, and, and, you know, hey, these, these are low power lasers, but again, you know, you do need to be careful. Even, even cat laser toys, they always warn you uh, about, so. Anyways, that's it. If folks have questions, throw them into the chat. I'll go back to the main uh, desktop view here and we'll see if we can uh, answer some of those questions. And sorry if it's choppy in this view, I'm still troubleshooting some Wirecast stuff. So it's, I don't know why, it's only in this view, it starts to get really choppy and the CPU usage isn't, isn't bad. So, okay, wow, lots of, lots of comments, things going on. Uh, let's see, do you know about node source? No, I haven't heard of that. Uh, there's a ton of stuff in the node world that I don't know about, uh, but that could be an interesting thing. Oh, it looks like node source is an easy way to install Node.js. So uh, nodesource.com looks like is something to check out. Uh, so that's a good way to do it. Um, and then, yeah, some comments about proxying. Yep, that, those can be fun. Um, let's see, any other questions? Um, yep, some uh, some consternation about uh, text and Unicode in Python 3, which, yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I don't wanna say it's bad because it's they've done a good thing. Like, 
it's as sane as you can make Unicode, I would bet. Like, you know, they've they've taken a bad thing and tried to polish it. So, I, you know, I really shouldn't say Unicode is good or bad because I don't have any of the context. You know, the, Unicode was created years ago and under lots of constraints because computers weren't as fast. They didn't have as much memory back then. And the problem was back then, you know, every character was a single byte, which means you can only have 255 characters. And so it's like, well, how do we support all these, you know, thousands of other characters? And so some people are like, well, let's just expand characters to take two bytes. But then everyone freaks out because it's like, well, suddenly my program that had a buffer of bytes of characters, which was 100 characters long, is now 200 bytes long. And, you know, when you were on low spec machines back then, that's a big deal. And so there, that's why there was all this complexity around, like, multiple sizes and things. So it's just unfortunate that that's how things have evolved. And now we have to live with that baggage and all that confusion. So, you know, maybe long term things get uh, are improved there. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, but anyways, that's it. Looks like that's uh, no, no more questions and things. So I'll wrap it up. This is the PyCat Laser Part 3 stream. So check out twitch.tv slash Adafruit. That's where I stream this live, all kinds of other live uh, shows. We do a couple streams a week, at least I do. Uh, on Mondays, I like to do a quick look at interesting Raspberry Pi software. And then on Fridays, like today, I do a more in-depth stream. So we're continuing with the Cat Laser project. Uh, programming note though, so I don't know, I won't have my regular streams next week of the Monday quick look and the uh, Friday in-depth. I will actually be out at Adafruit headquarters in New York, so I'll be out there for the uh, Hackers on Planet Earth convention uh, going on that weekend. So I'm sure there'll be some streaming going on, but I don't know if it's going to be these regular streams, so we'll see uh, what happens with that. But then also check out youtube.com slash Adafruit, and you can see all the videos like this one that goes up later, all the projects and fun stuff that we put up there. So subscribe to those uh, if you like the content. And then if you see these videos, you know, like, comment, subscribe. That lets us know that people like these videos and they're getting good uh, stuff from them. So, you know, let us know that you like this stuff and, and we'll keep doing it. If it's helpful, then uh, we're happy to, to help people out. So until then, this is Tony from Adafruit. So I'll see you guys later.